Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the universe speaking to you. You are now tuned into the Modern Spiritual Life Coaching Podcast by the certified Master Life Coach and Spiritual Guide, Coach Chip. Welcome, souls. We now begin this episode of a transformational journey, unedited, unscripted, and creating something from nothingness. Now... Let there be light on modern spiritual life coaching. Before we kick things off, we want to inform all of the listeners of the Modern Spiritual Podcast, our new program schedule. Every Monday and Friday we will deliver to you our mini-podcast series. That aims directly to spirituality, science, philosophy, and so much more, helping you raising your awareness to a higher awakening and enlightenment, only here on the official Modern Spiritual Podcast. Your transformational podcast station. Hey, this is episode 149 of the Modern Spiritual Podcast. We are back with more episodes for the new year 2021. Now stay tuned. That's right, we are back with our awesome programming with our mini-series, about spirituality, but now here is Master Certified Alchemy Coach Chip, on the official Modern Spiritual Podcast. It's me, Master Certified Alchemy Coach Chip. In this brand new year of 2021. Back with another exciting jam-packed year full of episodes of spiritual healing. But before we get into this episode, I just wanted to let all the listeners know what happened back in November and December of last year. For the ones that who don't know, that I started this podcast back in October 2019. Every week from that point on, I've done multiple episodes consistently. We went through the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. We gave a lot of information. We did research. We learned from it. We gave a lot of information out to save a lot of lives. And all the other things in the midst that has arisen throughout the year and dogma and negativity. Until the end of October, when we had our one-year anniversary, 
The politicians started in with the control of their power. And many spiritual healers and spiritual speakers will tend to disappear into thin air for a moment of time. And the reason for this is, is because the whole entire year I've taken in a lot of negative energy and baggages from others and other sources. And I decided I need to cleanse and clear that all out. Spend some time with the family during the holidays at home. Focus on other things that I have projects on, such as my book that's coming out by the end of this year, 2021, and other important essentials. So that's why I took that break. It gave a lot of new listeners and our listeners time to go through 147 episodes of all our past episodes to learn about our spiritual awakenings and enlightenments to help them raise their awareness, which it has done for many. So after a little bit of time, I decided, well, it's now the new year to start off. And we're going to begin with our episode 149, where we left off with mysticism. This is the first half of chapter one that will bring us to the end of chapter one with the point of departure. And by this time, you must have heard the other episode of point of departure. If you put these two together, you will then have one full understanding of the first chapter so in the meantime our schedule will stay on Fridays and Mondays that this podcast will put out and this is going to be Friday's podcast and then Monday you'll get on delivered on Sunday night but right now let's get into the episode and pick up where we left off right here on the modern spiritual podcast your transformational journey with integrity. Mysticism, a study in nature and development of spiritual consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. Second half of part one, chapter one. Three, but there is yet another theory of being to be considered, that which may be loosely defined as philosophic skepticism. This is the attitude of those who refuse to accept either the realistic or the idealistic answer to the eternal question, and, confronted in their turn with the riddle of reality, reply that there is no riddle to solve. We of course assume for the ordinary purposes of life that for every sequence A, B, present in our consciousness, there exists a mental or material A, B in the external universe and that the first is a strictly relevant, though probably wholly inadequate, expression of the second. The bundle of visual and auditory sensations, for instance, whose sum total I am accustomed to call Mrs. Smith, corresponds with something that exists in the actual, as well as in my phenomenal world. Behind my Mrs. Smith, behind the very different Mrs. Smith which the X-rays would exhibit, 
There is, contends the objective idealist, a transcendental, on the platonic sense, an ideal Mrs. Smith, at whose qualities I cannot even guess, but whose existence is quite independent of my apprehension of it. But though we do and must act on this hypothesis, it remains only a hypothesis, and it is one which philosophic skepticism will not let pass. The external world, say the skeptical schools, is, so far as I know it, a concept present in my mind. If my mind ceased to exist, so far as I know the concept which I call the world would cease to exist too. The one thing which for me indubitably is, is the self-experience, its whole consciousness. Outside this circle of consciousness, I have no authority to indulge in guesses as to what may or may not be. Hence for me, the absolute is a meaningless diagram, a superfluous complication of thought since the mind, wholly cut off from contact with external reality, has no reason to suppose that such a reality exists except in its own ideas. Every effort made by philosophy to go forth in search of it is merely the metaphysical squirrel running round the conceptual cage. In the completion and perfect unfolding of the set of ideas with which our consciousness is furnished lies the only reality which we can ever hope to know. Far better to stay here and make ourselves at home. Only this, for us, truly is. This purely subjective conception of being has found representatives in every school of thought, even including by curious paradox that of mystical philosophy, its one effective antagonist. Thus Delacroix, after an exhaustive and even sympathetic analysis of St. Teresa's progress towards union with the Absolute, ends upon the assumption that the God with whom she was united was the content of her own subconscious mind. Such a mysticism is that of a kitten running after its own tail, a different path indeed from that which the great seekers for reality have pursued. The reductio ad absurdum of this doctrine is found in the so-called philosophy of new thought, which begs its disciples to try quietly to realize that the infinite is really you. By its utter denial not merely of a knowable, but of a logically conceivable transcendent, it drives us in the end to the conclusion of extreme pragmatism, that truth for us is not an immutable reality, but merely that idea which happens to work out as true and useful in any given experience. There is no reality behind appearance, therefore all faiths, all figments with which we people that nothingness are equally true provided they be comfortable and good to live by. Logically carried out, this conception of being would permit each man to regard other men as non-existent except within his own consciousness, the only place where a strict skepticism will allow that anything exists. Even the mind which conceives consciousness exists for us only in our own conception of it. We no more know what we are than we know what we shall be. Man is left a conscious something in the midst, so far as he knows, of nothing, with no resources save the exploring of his own consciousness. Philosophic skepticism is particularly interesting to our present inquiry, 
because it shows us the position in which pure reason, if left to itself, is bound to end. It is utterly logical, and though we may feel it to be absurd, we can never prove it to be so. Those who are temperamentally inclined to credulity may become naturalists and persuade themselves to believe in the reality of the sense world. Those with a certain instinct for the absolute may adopt the more reasonable faith of idealism. But the true intellectualist, who concedes nothing to instinct or emotion, is obliged in the end to adopt some form of skeptical philosophy. The horrors of nihilism, in fact, can only be escaped by the exercise of faith, by a trust in man's innate but strictly irrational instinct for that real, above all reason, beyond all thought, towards which, at its best moments, his spirit tends. If the metaphysician be true to his own postulates, he must acknowledge in the end that we are all forced to live, to think, and at last to die in an unknown and unknowable world, fed arbitrarily and diligently, yet how we know not, by ideas and suggestions whose truth we cannot test, but whose pressure we cannot resist. It is not by sight, but by faith, faith in a supposed external order which we can never prove to exist, and in the approximate truthfulness and constancy of the vague messages which we receive from it, that ordinary men must live and move. We must put our trust in laws of nature, which have been devised by the human mind as a convenient epitome of its own observations of phenomena. Must, for the purposes of daily life, accept these phenomena at their face value, and act a faith beside which the grosser superstitions of the Neapolitan peasant are hardly noticeable. The intellectual quest of reality, then, leads us down one of three blind alleys. 1. To an acceptance of the symbolic world of appearance as the real. 2. To the elaboration of a theory also of necessity symbolic, which, beautiful in itself, cannot help us to attain the absolute which it describes. 3. To hopeless but strictly logical skepticism. In answer to the why, why of the bewildered and eternal child in us, philosophy, though always ready to postulate the unknown if she can, is bound to reply only, Nestieu, Nestieu. In spite of all her busy map-making, she cannot reach the goal which she points out to us, cannot explain the curious conditions under which we imagine that we know, cannot even divide with a sure hand the subject and object of thought. Science, whose business is with phenomena and our knowledge of them, though she too is an idealist at heart, has been accustomed to explain that all our ideas and instincts, the pictured world that we take so seriously, the oddly limited and illusory nature of our experience, appear to minister to one great end, the preservation of life, and consequent fulfillment of that highly mystical hypothesis, the cosmic idea. Each perception, she assures us, serves a useful purpose in this evolutionary scheme, a scheme, by the way, which has been invented, we know not why, by the human mind, and imposed upon an obedient universe. By vision, hearing, smell and touch, says science, 
we find our way about, are warned of danger, obtain our food. The male perceives beauty in the female in order that the species may be propagated. It is true that this primitive instinct has given birth to higher and purer emotions, but these too fulfill a social purpose and are not so useless as they seem. Man must eat to live, therefore many foods give us agreeable sensations. If he overeats, he dies, therefore indigestion is an unpleasant pain. Certain facts of which too keen a perception would act detrimentally to the life force are, for most men, impossible of realization, i.e., the uncertainty of life, the decay of the body, the vanity of all things under the sun. When we are in good health, we all feel very real, solid and permanent, and this is of all our illusions the most ridiculous and also the most obviously useful from the point of view of the efficiency and preservation of the race. But when we look closer, we see that this brisk generalization does not cover all the ground, not even that little tract of ground of which our senses make us free. Indeed, that it is more remarkable for its omissions than for its inclusions. Grosajar has well said that from the moment in which man is no longer content to devise things useful for his existence under the exclusive action of the will to live, the principle of physical evolution has been violated. Nothing can be more certain than that man is not so content. He has been called by utilitarian philosophers a tool-making animal, the highest praise they knew how to bestow. More surely, he is a vision-making animal, a creature of perverse and unpractical ideals, dominated by dreams no less than by appetites. Dreams which can only be justified upon the theory that he moves towards some other goal than that of physical perfection or intellectual supremacy. is controlled by some higher and more vital reality than that of the determinists. We are driven to the conclusion that if the theory of evolution is to include or explain the facts of artistic and spiritual experience, and it cannot be accepted by any serious thinker of these great tracts of consciousness remain outside its range, it must be rebuilt on a mental rather than a physical basis. Even the most ordinary human life includes in its range of fundamental experiences violent and unforgettable sensations, forced on us as it were against our will, for which science finds it hard to account. These experiences and sensations, and the hours of exalted emotion which they bring with them, often recognized by us as the greatest, most significant hours of our lives, fulfill no office in relation to her pet functions of nutrition and reproduction. It is true that they are far-reaching their effects on character, but they do little or nothing to assist that character in its struggle for physical life. To the unprejudiced eye, many of them may seem hopelessly out of place in a universe constructed on strictly physico-chemical lines. Look almost as though nature, left to herself, tended to contradict her own beautifully logical laws. Their presence more, the large place which they fill in the human world of appearance, is a puzzling circumstance for deterministic philosophers, 
You can only escape from the dilemma here presented to them by calling these things illusions and dignifying their own more manageable illusions with the title of facts. Amongst the more intractable of these groups of perceptions and experiences are those which we connect with religion, with pain, and with beauty. All three, for those selves which are capable of receiving their messages, possess a mysterious authority far in excess of those feelings, arguments, or appearances which they may happen to contradict. All three, were the universe of the naturalist true, would be absurd. All three have ever been treated with the reverence due to vital matters by the best minds of the race. A. I need not point out the hopelessly irrational character of all great religions, which rest, one and all, on a primary assumption that can never be intellectually demonstrated, much less proved. The assumption that the supersensible is somehow important and real, and is intimately connected with the life of man. This fact has been incessantly dwelt upon by their critics, and has provoked many a misplaced exercise of ingenuity on the part of their intelligent friends. Yet religion, emphasizing and pushing to extremes that general dependence on faith, which we saw to be an inevitable condition of our lives, is one of the most universal and ineradicable functions of man. And this although it constantly acts detrimentally to the interests of his merely physical existence, opposes the exclusive action of the will to live, except insofar as that will aspires to eternal life. Strictly utilitarian, almost logical in the savage, religion becomes more and more transcendental with the upward progress of the race. It begins as black magic. It ends as pure love. Why did the cosmic idea elaborate this religious instinct if the construction put upon its intentions by the determinists be true? B. Consider again the whole group of phenomena which are known as the problem of suffering. The mental anguish and physical pain which appear to be the inevitable result of the steady operation of natural law and its voluntary assistance, the cruelty, greed and injustice of man. Here it is true, the naturalist seems at first sight to make a little headway, and can point to some amongst the cruder forms of suffering which are clearly useful to the race, punishing us for past follies, sparing to new efforts, warning against future infringements of law. But he forgets the many others which refuse to be resumed under this simple formula, forgets to explain how it is that the cosmic idea involves the long torments of the incurable the tortures of the innocent, the deep anguish of the bereaved, the existence of so many gratuitously agonizing forms of death. He forgets, too, the strange fact that man's capacity for suffering tends to increase in depth and subtlety with the increase of culture and civilization. Ignores the still more mysterious, perhaps most significant circumstance that the highest types have accepted it eagerly and willingly have found in pain the grave but kindly teacher of immortal secrets, the conferrer of liberty, even the initiator into amazing joys. Those who explain suffering as the result of nature's immense fecundity, 
a byproduct of that overcrowding and stress through which the fittest tend. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Survive. Forget that even were this demonstration valid and complete, it would leave the real problem untouched. The question is not, whence come those conditions which provoke in the self the experiences called sorrow, anxiety, pain? But why do these conditions hurt the self? The pain is mental. A little chloroform, and though the conditions continue unabated, the suffering is gone. Why does full consciousness always include the mysterious capacity for misery as well as for happiness? A capacity which seems at first sight to invalidate any conception of the absolute as beautiful and good. Why does evolution, as we ascend the ladder of life, foster instead of diminishing the capacity for useless mental anguish, for long, dull torment, bitter grief? Why, when so much lies outside our limited powers of perception, when so many of our own most vital functions are unperceived by consciousness, does suffering of some sort form an integral part of the experience of man? For utilitarian purposes, acute discomfort would be quite enough. The cosmic idea, as the determinist explain it, did not really need an apparatus which felt all the throes of cancer, the horrors of neurasthenia, the pangs of birth. Still less did it need the torments of impotent sympathy for other people's irremediable pain, the dreadful power of feeling the world's woe. We are hopelessly oversensitized for the part science calls us to play. Pain, however we may look at it, indicates a profound disharmony between the sense world and the human self. If it is to be vanquished, either the disharmony must be resolved by deliberate and careful adjustment of the self to the world of sense, or that self must turn from the sense world to some other with which it is in tune. Pessimist and optimist here join hands. But whilst the pessimist, resting in appearance, only sees nature red in tooth and claw, offering him little hope of escape, the optimist thinks that pain and anguish, which may in their lower forms be life's harsh guides on the path of physical evolution, in their higher and apparently useless developments are her leaders and teachers in the upper school of suprasensible reality. He believes that they press the self towards another world, still natural for him, though supernatural for his antagonist, in which it will be more at home. Watching life, he sees in pain the complement of love, and is inclined to call these the wings on which man's spirit can best take flight towards the Absolute. Hence he can say with Akempis, Gloriari in tribulatione non esclave amanti. And needs not to speak of morbid folly when he sees the Christian saints run eagerly and merrily to the cross. 
He calls suffering the gymnastic of eternity, the terrible initiative caress of God, recognizing in it a quality for which the disagreeable rearrangement of nerve molecules cannot account. Sometimes, in the excess of his optimism, he puts to the test of practice this theory with all its implications. Refusing to be deluded by the pleasures of the sense world, he accepts instead of avoiding pain and becomes an ascetic, a puzzling type for the convinced naturalist who, falling back upon contempt, that favored resource of the frustrated reason, can only regard him as diseased. Pain then, which plunges like a sword through creation, leaving on the one side cringing and degraded animals, and on the other side heroes and saints, is one of those facts of universal experience which are peculiarly intractable from the point of view of a merely materialistic philosophy. C. From this same point of view, the existence of music and poetry, the qualities of beauty and of rhythm, the evoked sensations of awe, reverence and rapture are almost as difficult to account for. The question why an apparent corrugation of the Earth's surface, called for convenience sake an alp, coated with congealed water and perceived by us as a snowy peak, should produce in certain natures acute sensations of ecstasy and adoration. Why the skylark's song should catch us up to heaven and wonder and mystery speak to us alike in the little speedwell's darling blue and in the cadence of the wind is a problem that seems to be merely absurd until it is seen to be insoluble. Here Madam Howe and Lady Why alike are silent. With all our busy seeking, we have not found the sorting house where loveliness is extracted from the flux of things. We know not why great poetry should move us to unspeakable emotion, or a stream of notes, arranged in a peculiar sequence, catch us up to heightened levels of vitality. Nor can we guess how a passionate admiration for that which we call best in art or letters can possibly contribute to the physical evolution of the race. In spite of many lengthy disquisitions on aesthetics, Beauty's secret is still her own. A shadowy companion half seen, half guessed at, she keeps step with the upward march of life, and we receive her message and respond to it, not because we understand it, but because we must. Here it is that we approach that attitude of the self, that point of view which is loosely and generally called mystical. Here, instead of those broad, blind alleys which philosophy showed us, a certain type of mind has always discerned three straight and narrow ways going out towards the absolute. In religion, in pain, and in beauty. And not only in these, but in many other apparently useless peculiarities of the empirical world and of the perceiving consciousness. These persons insist that they recognize at least the fringe of the real. Down these three paths, as well as by many another secret way, they claim that news comes to the self concerning levels of reality which in their wholeness are inaccessible to the senses. Worlds wondrous and immortal, whose existence is not conditioned by the given world which those senses report. Beauty, said Hegel, 
who, though he was no mystic, had a touch of that mystical intuition which no philosopher can afford to be without, is merely the spiritual making itself known sensuously. In the good, the beautiful, the true, says Rudolf Eucken, we see reality revealing its personal character. They are part of a coherent and substantial spiritual world. Here, some of the veils of that substantial world are stripped off. Reality peeps through and is recognized, dimly or acutely, by the imprisoned self. Presajar only develops this idea when he says, if the mind penetrates deeply into the facts of aesthetics, it will find more and more that these facts are based upon an ideal identity between the mind itself and things. At a certain point, the harmony becomes so complete and the finality so close that it gives us actual emotion. The beautiful then becomes the sublime, brief apparition by which the soul is caught up into the true mystic state and touches the absolute. It is scarcely possible to persist in this aesthetic perception without feeling lifted up by it above things and above ourselves in an ontological vision which closely resembles the absolute of the mystics. It was of this underlying reality, this truth of things, that St. Augustine cried in a moment of lucid vision, O beauty so old and so new, too late have I loved thee. It is in this sense also that beauty is truth, truth beauty. And as regards the knowledge of ultimate things which is possible to ordinary men, it may well be that that is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. Of beauty, says Plato in an immortal passage, I repeat again that we saw her there shining in company with the celestial forms, and coming to earth we find her here too, shining in clearness through the clearest aperture of sense. For sight is the most piercing of our bodily senses, though not by that is wisdom seen. Her loveliness would have been transporting if there had been a visible image of her. And the other ideas, if they had visible counterparts, would be equally lovely. But this is the privilege of beauty, that being the loveliest, she is also the most palpable to sight. Now he who is not nearly initiated, or who has been corrupted, does not easily rise out of this world to the sight of true beauty in the other. But he whose initiation is recent, and who has been the spectator of many glories in the other world, is amazed when he sees anyone having a godlike face or form, which is the expression of divine beauty. And at first a shudder runs through him, and again the old awe steals over him. Most men in the course of their lives have known such platonic hours of initiation, when the sense of beauty has risen from a pleasant feeling to a passion, and an element of strangeness and terror has been mingled with their joy. In those hours, the world has seemed charged with a new vitality, with a splendor which does not belong to it, but is poured through it, as light through a colored window, grace through a sacrament, from that perfect beauty which shines in company with the celestial forms beyond the pale of appearance. In such moods of heightened consciousness, 
Each blade of grass seems fierce with meaning, and becomes a well of wondrous light, a little emerald set in the city of God. The seeing self is indeed an initiate thrust suddenly into the sanctuary of the mysteries, and feels the old awe and amazement with which man encounters the real. In such experiences, a new factor of the eternal calculus appears to be thrust in on us, a factor which no honest seeker for truth can afford to neglect, since, if it be dangerous to say that any two systems of knowledge are mutually exclusive, it is still more dangerous to give uncritical priority to any one system. We are bound, then, to examine this path to reality as closely and seriously as we should investigate the most neatly finished safety ladder of solid ash which offered the Salita Alstele. Why, after all, take as our standard a material world whose existence is affirmed by nothing more trustworthy than the sense impressions of normal men, those imperfect and easily cheated channels of communication? The mystics, those adventurers of whom we spoke upon the first page of this book, have always declared, implicitly or explicitly, their distrust in these channels of communication. They have never been deceived by phenomena, nor by the careful logic of the industrious intellect. One after another, with extraordinary unanimity, they have rejected that appeal to the unreal world of appearance, which is the standard of sensible men, affirming that there is another way, another secret, by which the conscious self may reach the actuality which it seeks. More complete in their grasp of experience than the votaries of intellect or of sense, they accept as central for life those spiritual messages which are mediated by religion, by beauty, and by pain. More reasonable than the rationalists, they find in that very hunger for reality, which is the mother of all metaphysics, an implicit proof that such reality exists, that there is something else, some final satisfaction beyond the ceaseless stream of sensation which besieges consciousness. In that thou hast sought me, thou hast already found me, says the voice of absolute truth in their ears. This is the first doctrine of mysticism. Its next is that only in so far as the self is real can it hope to know reality. Like to light. Quote at quote loquitur. Upon the propositions implicit in these two laws, the whole claim and practice of the mystic life depends. Finite as we are, they say, and here they speak not for themselves but for the race. Lost though we seem to be in the woods or in the wide air's wilderness, in this world of time and of chance, we have still, like the strayed animals or like the migrating birds, our homing instinct. We seek. That is a fact. We seek a city still out of sight. In the contrast with this goal, we live. But if this be so, then already we possess something of being, even in our finite seeking. For the readiness to seek is already something of an attainment, even if a poor one. Further, in this seeking we are not wholly dependent on that homing instinct. For some, who have climbed the hilltops, that city is not really out of sight. The mystics see it, 
and report to us concerning it. Science and metaphysics may do their best and their worst, but these pathfinders of the spirit never falter in their statements concerning that independent spiritual world which is the only goal of pilgrim man. They say that messages come to him from that spiritual world, that complete reality which we call absolute, that we are not after all hermetically sealed from it. To all who will receive it, news comes of a world of absolute life, absolute beauty, absolute truth, beyond the bourne of time and place. News that most of us translate and inevitably distort in the process into the language of religion, of beauty, of love, or of pain. Of all those forms of life and thought with which humanity has fed its craving for truth, mysticism alone postulates, and in the persons of its great initiates, proves not only the existence of the Absolute, but also this link, this possibility first of knowing, finally of attaining it. It denies that possible knowledge is to be limited, a. To sense impressions. B. To any process of intellection. C. To the unfolding of the content of normal consciousness. Such diagrams of experience, it says, are hopelessly incomplete. The mystics find the basis of their method not in logic, but in life. In the existence of a discoverable real, a spark of true being within the seeking subject which can, in that ineffable experience which they call the act of union, fuse itself with and thus apprehend the reality of the sought object. In theological language, their theory of knowledge is that the spirit of man, itself essentially divine, is capable of immediate communion with God, the one reality. In mysticism, that love of truth which we saw as the beginning of all philosophy leaves the merely intellectual sphere and takes on the assured aspect of a personal passion. Where the philosopher guesses and argues, the mystic lives and looks and speaks consequently the disconcerting language of first-hand experience, not the neat dialectic of the schools. Hence. Whilst the absolute of the metaphysicians remains a diagram, impersonal and unattainable, the absolute of the mystics is lovable, attainable, alive. Oh, taste and see, they cry, in accents of astounding certainty and joy. Ours is an experimental science. We can but communicate our system, never its result. We come to you not as thinkers, but as doers. Leave your deep and absurd trust in the senses with their language of dot and dash, which may possibly report fact, but can never communicate personality. If philosophy has taught you anything, she has surely taught you the length of her tether, and the impossibility of attaining to the doubtless admirable grazing land which lies beyond it. One after another, idealists have arisen who, straining frantically at the rope, have announced to the world their approaching liberty, only to be flung back at last into the little circle of sensation. But here we are, a small family, it is true, yet one that refuses to die out, assuring you that we have slipped the knot and are free of those grazing grounds. 
This is evidence which you are bound to bring into account before you can add up the sum total of possible knowledge. For you will find it impossible to prove that the world as seen by the mystics, unimaginable, formless, dark with excess of bright, is less real than that which is expounded by the youngest and most promising demonstrator of a physical chemical universe. We will be quite candid with you. Examine us as much as you like. Our machinery, our veracity, our results. We cannot promise that you shall see what we have seen. For here each man must adventure for himself. But we defy you to stigmatize our experiences as impossible or invalid. Is your world of experience so well and logically founded that you dare make of it a standard? Philosophy tells you that it is founded on nothing better than the reports of your sensory apparatus and the traditional concepts of the race. Certainly it is imperfect. Probably it is illusion. In any event it never touches the foundation of things. Whereas what the world which truly knows nothing calls mysticism is the science of ultimates, the science of self-evident reality which cannot be reasoned about because it is the object of pure reason or perception. End of part one, chapter one. That brings us to the end of chapter one, Mysticism, the point of departure. Be sure to subscribe to the Modern Spiritual Podcast so you don't miss an episode. Our next podcast on Monday. Chapter 2 on Mysticism and Vitalism from the Modern Spiritual Podcast Your Transformational Journey with Integrity.